Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Kellen, who do you think has a stupider face? Me or you? It's debatable. Because my face is pretty stupid. I think I've got you beat. Well, you do have that face that you do when you try and look really creepy. Should we go down the side story route? Should we Should we do the side story? No. So we're in like eighth grade and we're having a sleepover. It's like three in the morning and I, I'm so tired. And Kellen just keeps flaring his nostrils and doing this incredibly creepy face at me. And I was just so annoyed. Hey, mixed signals. You you were laughing. It was a joke. I don't remember laughing. You thought it was funny. I don't remember laughing. <laughs> I remember laughing. Uh, anyway, the reason that I ask is Kellen and I have been talking about maybe an idea of, since we're already recording the podcast and since we're no longer in my unfinished basement doing that, it may be beneficial to start recording these with video as well as just audio and posting them to YouTube. Kellen and I are not experienced in videography or lighting and and it probably wouldn't be that great of a production, but we're curious if our listeners would find any value in having these conversations on YouTube as a video podcast rather than just audio. And it's tough because right now it's nice that I don't have to look professional. And you don't. Exactly. You're wearing like spandex and slippers. These are sweats. Fine. I'm just a t-shirt and jeans kind of guy. I never, I always envied the kids who had like style. (laughs) That doesn't exist for me. I just throw on a pair of blue jeans and a t-shirt everywhere I go. Well, and beyond that, it's been kind of nice to just be anonymous. And part of the point of the podcast is that we are absolute nobodies. Nobody 
knows who we are or cares who we are. And that's the whole point. We're not experts. We're normal guys who have been learning about this along the way. And we're just sharing what we've learned. But I'm glad you bring it up because it is worth asking. It'd be great to get feedback. Is that something that people would find valuable or not? And part of me is like, if people are going to listen to a podcast, they'll go to just a podcast player and listen to it from there. But then I saw some crazy stat about how, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was like 60% of people who listen to podcasts go to YouTube to find them. And that blew my mind. And we've had, we've had a few people reach out and be like, when are you going to post your stuff to YouTube? And truth is, it's a lot easier said than done. We're, we're working on putting at least our past content up as just audiograms, right? Where you're basically just seeing maybe a picture of us or something with a waveform and you can listen to the past episodes there. But what we're talking about is actually recording you and I sort of live talking to each other. So if you feel strongly about it one way or the other, or I guess if you don't feel strongly, but you have some input, reach out to us and let us know because it would be interesting to hear that feedback. You know, we only have so much time and energy and effort to put into things. And we're trying to channel that time into whatever is going to be most beneficial and build value for people the most. Well, if this far into the podcast, people still aren't convinced that collapse is an eventual reality. I think them seeing our ugly mugs will be pretty good evidence that the world's coming to an end. Like you and I are the product of some sort of dystopian world. Right. Like if society can produce that, then there's <laughs> clearly a problem. <laughs> I think that every day when I look in the mirror. Good morning, Corey. <laughs> if society can produce that, we've got an issue. Cool. Well, like always, reach out to us at breakingdowncollapse at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at CollapsePod or on Reddit. I'm user Corey John, K-O-R-Y-J-O-N. So with that out of the way, let's talk paleoclimatology. All week, as we have been talking about the importance of this topic and preparing for this episode, you've been acting like it is such a boring thing to discuss. But paleoclimatology is actually really fascinating. Yeah, I actually do agree. It is a really interesting topic. I just like to give it grief. I don't know if it's just because the word itself just sounds like we're about to sit through a college lecture, but it definitely has really important implications. And I think the reason that we want to talk about it is that we get the question a lot and, and a lot of sort of climate change deniers ask as well, like there's all these claims about what the climate was like tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years ago. How could we possibly know what actually happened? Yeah, you've heard me mention that I spent most of my life not really caring about climate change or really knowing whether it was even real or not. I had heard things both ways. And so for me, I have had kind of this lingering question of how exactly do we have confidence in what climate looked like in the past and what we can expect for the future? And it makes me think of something that I remember my dad said once growing up, not about climate change specifically, but he was actually talking about carbon dating or what's sometimes referred to as radiocarbon dating. And it's a method for being able to determine how ancient something is. And at the time, my dad had basically said, like, you can't trust any of it. It's all just a bunch of baloney because he had seen something where somebody claimed they had done carbon dating on like a fresh orange peel and that the results showed it was 4 million years old. I don't know if it was accurate what my dad was saying about that test and that it actually showed that. But it goes back to the point that science and scientific methods for establishing fact, especially when it comes to looking to the past, it's something that is constantly evolving. We get better and better at it, but we've made mistakes 
in the past, we've claimed things and have later determined that those were inaccurate. We come up with better ways of really determining what history looked like. So with all of the doubt and skepticism that's out there, I think it's really important to make sure we have an understanding of what methods are used, what kind of confidence we can have when we talk about changes in global climate and what that means for us as we look to the future. Yeah, so to start off, let's kind of just define what paleoclimatology is, be really clear about what it's used for, why it's important, and then we can get into some of the details about how it's actually done. So paleoclimatology is the branch of science that deals with climates prevalent at particular times in the geological past, which I think is just kind of the sciencey nerdy way to say that paleoclimatology is dealing with climates of the past. So in the present, we are currently trying to figure out what the future is going to hold, right? We're trying to figure out what is the future of our climate, and especially what is the future of our climate as we as humans act on it. As we are emitting CO2 or whatever it is, whatever actions we're taking, what consequences does that have and what could that lead to? And like with anything else, we can really only accurately forecast the future when we can look at past patterns. And because climate change is something that happens over such long time periods, and we've really only been taking direct measurements of the climate for the past 100 or 150 years or so, we don't have enough data to be able to establish those patterns. Climates don't change over the course of 100 and 150 years, at least not in a way that allows us to establish any sort of patterns. So the only way to really view past patterns is to reconstruct what the climate was like in the past. But in order to do that, we have to use something called proxies or proxy methods. So those are different ways to tell what happened and when. And just as a really brief, simple example of what a proxy might be, you've probably heard that if you look at the cross section of like a tree or tree stump, it has rings, right? Well, you can use the rings in a tree stump to be able to determine years of drought or years of a lot of moisture. You know, each ring basically signifying a year and then the thickness of those rings signifying the amount of water the tree was receiving at the time. So that's just a really simple example, but nature provides a ton of different ways to be able to tell what was happening in a certain area related to the climate. And the field of paleoclimatology began to take shape in the 1800s, but really came about in the 1900s when scientists began to start to study and understand the greenhouse effect. And when you fast forward to now, we can use those proxies that they began to establish and, and sort of hash out over the 1900s. And now we can mix them with computer models to expand on the knowledge and then help forecast for the future. So it allows us to much better be able to tell what the future holds regarding temperature changes, the consequences to the ecosystems and food and water, as well as potential feedback loops. Obviously, and, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but paleoclimatology isn't a perfect science. Kellen already mentioned it's one that's always changing, but it's pretty remarkable what can be discovered about the past just using information that the earth provides us. Yeah, so let's maybe dig a little bit deeper on that, what those methods are. You mentioned proxies. And the gist of it when you talk about proxies is that nature leaves a record. One kind of silly example, I think about the fact that I have broken my clavicle four times, two times on each side. And one of those breaks in particular was really severe. My collarbone just snapped in half. And on that occasion, instead of putting a plate and screws like we did on the other side, we just let it kind of heal back together, which meant there was 
a slight overlap in the two halves of my clavicle when they form back together. Anyways, this was like 20 years ago for me, and I still have a bump on my collarbone. And there's a way when bones break and they come back together and heal, they kind of calcify and you'll get this bump and it can kind of smooth out over time. But if somebody were to look at my skeleton and they were an experienced doctor, they could probably guess how old I was when that bone break took place. They'd have a rough idea of when it happened and also the severity of it because there's evidence. And so the scientific community, these paleoclimatologists have found over time several places that they can look to see the way that nature keeps a record. They can see the evidence of what happened in the past. You mentioned tree rings, and that's a great example. You can count the number of tree rings to determine the age. You can look at the thickness of the tree rings, like you said, to understand fluctuations in temperature and precipitation. You can also see certain events that took place. You can see scars and you can see burns from natural events like fires. As one example of this, there's a certain type of tree, the bristlecone pine, located in the White Mountains of California. And in 2002, a Dr. Hughes was able to extract ring data from thousands of years old wood from these pines that had died many hundreds of years ago. And because of the dry climate in that area, these old stumps had been preserved really well. And so it created this record that we could look back 10,000 years, which is pretty phenomenal. But tree rings aren't the only proxy. Another proxy has to deal with these little microorganisms that are found in aquatic and marine environments. The most prominent of these is foraminifera, or forums for short, and diatoms. They're kind of these microalgae. But what's important about these microorganisms is that they are shelled. They form shells. So forum shells are made from calcium carbonate. Diatom shells are made from silicon dioxide. But it, it kind of works like this. These organisms die. They sink down to the bottom of the ocean. And then they're buried and preserved in the sediment. You know, in the oceans, there's just kind of this steady rain of shells from these really small surface dwelling animals and, and they're continually falling. And so eventually over time that has built up hundreds of meters of sediment. And like I said, the sediment kind of preserves these shells and it can preserve them for millions of years all the way back to like 65 million years ago, the age of the dinosaurs. So anyways, you take these sediment cores, these samples from lakes and oceans, within those samples you find these shells, and the shells show what the water chemistry was like at the time that those shells were being formed. And you can even tell what water temperatures were like. And to me, this is fascinating. You know, calcium carbonate, the carbonate contains oxygen. And those oxygen molecules, those atoms exist in two different naturally occurring stable isotopes. One is heavier than the other. And so they can actually look at the ratio of these two isotopes to get a sense for what the past temperatures look like. And we're talking a very small difference. Like the change is only 0.2 parts per million decrease 
for each degree of temperature increase in this isotope ratio. But what they've done when they take these samples, it's, it's kind of like if you think about, let's say you have a milkshake and you put your finger on top of the straw and lift it out and the straw is full of milkshake, right? They can take these big pipes basically and, and sink them down into the sediment, pull it out. And they've done this, you know, they've taken hundreds of deep sea cores from around the world and they've mapped out what the past surface and bottom water temperatures looked like over the history of time. So obviously the deeper the sediment, the further back in time that you're looking. And one example is they can see that the temperature of the Arctic Ocean was about 10 to 15 degrees Celsius warmer at the time of the dinosaurs. And I'll mention really quick that it's extremely complex. There are a lot of factors when they try to model this out. You know, those isotope ratios depend on a lot of things. Like the lighter molecules, that less heavy isotope, they tend to evaporate first, but the heavier molecules in water vapor tend to condense and precipitate first. So when you think about weather patterns and the way water evaporates in one part of the globe and moves to another and comes down in precipitation, you get different isotope ratios in different parts of the ocean. And it looks a little bit different, whether that's coming down as snow or as rain, and then it looks even different during certain time periods in which the water level was much lower because much of the water was tied up in these great ice sheets. And so it is a complicated science, but they've developed really sophisticated methods to confidently say this is what the climate looked like over thousands and thousands of years, and they can see the cycles that take place. And from what I understand, they will take multiple of those proxies and compare together, right? And so by taking a bunch of them and saying, this is the data we got from our ice cores, and this is the data we got from our sea cores, and this is the data we got from tree rings or whatever, and then they can compare them together to help make sure that they're on the same page. And as they're starting to put all of that information together, you start to see a much bigger picture. It's not like they're relying on one single type of data to come up with everything that we know of as far as patterns of the past, there's dozens of types of proxies that they can use. Is that right? Yeah, that is spot on. And I'm glad you bring up that there's even more proxies and they can use these to kind of cross check and make sure their models are accurate. So one of those that you mentioned is ice cores. And you know, over time, year after year, in certain parts of the world, you get another layer of ice and then another and another and another. In a sense, it's similar to those tree rings, right? Where you can look back and see what things were like as you get closer to the center. As you go deeper on these ice cores, you know, they can take a sample and they can look back and see all of the layers. They can see those stable isotope ratios that I talked about. They can also analyze what kind of gas is trapped in the ice. So when we talk about greenhouse gases, you know, if they want to see how much methane was trapped in the ice during a certain year, they can look back really far. You know, they've got places in Greenland, in Antarctica, where they pull these ice cores. And the oldest of these has recovered ice that was deposited half a million years ago. So you're right that they can look at the ice cores in a certain area. They can look at the sediment cores around the globe. They can look at tree rings, like we mentioned before. Another one that's really interesting is coral. The Great Barrier Reef has been home to coral for somewhere around 6,000 years. And the way that coral works 
you think about my bone that I talked about, my bone breaks, and you can look back and you kind of see the history. Coral has this living surface tissue, but underneath that is kind of this skeleton of history. So similar to how they can drill down into ice, they can drill down into ocean sediment. They can also drill down into coral and take coral core samples. Then they can look at it through an x-ray or UV light. They can see all these layers. And as they examine those, they can see a lot of the same things that we've talked about with these other proxies as well. So like you said, it sounds extremely complex, right? Like it's a super complicated process. It's not as easy as maybe the simple example of looking at a tree ring, right? And even tree rings have a lot of complexity to them. But some of these that you're describing sound really involved and in-depth when you get talking about isotopes and gas levels and all of this stuff. Pretty incredible that they're able to determine all of those things and that they have so many different methods of doing it. And even more impressive that for the most part, the data checks out when they cross-check and use other types to try and compare. You know, if one researcher or group of researchers does a study and they come up with their idea of what the past looks like based on their specific proxy they're using, and then they go to another group of researchers who's using a completely different type of proxy and they say, let's compare the data together, and they conclude that the data was the same or close, that's pretty awesome. So I guess once you have that information, what do you do with it? How does it help us to determine sort of where we're headed in regards to climate change today? Well, what it does is it allows you to kind of write the story. For example, you find certain fossils in certain parts of the world at a certain level of depth in the ground. And you can start to figure out like, here is the life that existed, the plants and animals that were living during a certain period of time. And it, it is fascinating. As I was doing some research on this, the way that they're able to say, yeah, we, we saw a series of major volcanic eruptions and that kind of led to this certain microorganism, these microbes that were producing a lot of oxygen and that did this to the atmosphere and that caused this to happen. And then we got these greenhouse gases and things warmed up, but then XYZ happened and we went into an ice age. And with quite a bit of confidence, they can paint an accurate picture of what the history of the world has looked like from a climate standpoint. One thing that it has also done is it has helped them identify the factors, what contributes to the change in climate. So we, we talk about greenhouse gases all the time on the podcast, and that plays a major part. But there are also these cycles, these, these changes in solar output. And some of that is a result of the shape of the orbit of the Earth. They can now determine the way that that has changed. They call that eccentricity. There's also variations in the Earth's axial tilt. They call that obliquity. And there's even the tendency of the earth to kind of wobble. And, and we're talking about a wobble that happens over thousands of years, but that wobble can cause ice ages. So you, you've got these changes in the earth's orbit. You've got just changes in solar output from the sun itself. You've got changes in the distribution of the continents. You know, as there was once maybe a singular land mass, you hear about Pangaea. And as that spread out, that changed a lot of things about the way ocean water is interacting with coastal areas and the way that water is evaporating. And so they've been able to identify all these factors 
that come into play when it comes to the change of our climate. And they've even been able to see what kind of patterns that results in, which leads to a claim that a lot of climate change deniers make, which is, oh, this is all just cyclical. And the fact is we do have cycles. There's roughly one climate swing every 100,000 years. And so being able to use these methods, these proxies to determine what things look like, they can see how global temperatures spiked and dipped and spiked and dipped. But we're talking, like I said, 100,000 years between each climate swing. And usually when we're talking about paleoclimatology, we're talking about such an extended time scale hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years. And so that leads to being able to identify anomalies, which our current time frame is an anomaly. And a big one. Yeah. You think about the hockey stick curve in global temperature. You know, over the past 100 years, we've created enough warming, or you could say enough warming has taken place to cancel out the cooling of the last 6,000 years. You know, if you, you look at the way the cycles work, we should be kind of hitting the bottom of a cooling cycle. And yet we've reversed that at a very rapid rate. Yeah. The history books of the past talked about how we were in an ice age, right? A little ice age or whatever they called it. And we sort of ripped ourselves out of that, right? As we heat up the planet. And that's one of the things that I think is most frustrating to me is, again, as, as humans, we are really bad at seeing the big picture, especially when we're talking about huge numbers or timescales. So a climate change denier can can just be like, yeah, this is cyclical. This happens all the time. We we raise and we lower. We've been hotter than this before. The planet has been much hotter than this before. There's been more carbon than this before. Carbon dioxide, that is. And yes, the earth has been hotter than this before, right? And there has been higher concentrations of carbon dioxide before, but never this rapid. And never have humans experienced a change like this and proven that they can live through it. And especially never have humans in a complex or complicated society proven that they can overcome changes this rapid. So it's extremely naive to just say, oh, well, climates change all the time. If you look in the past, it's happened all the time. So this is just another cycle. We're fine. That leads to another thing that humans are really bad at grasping, which is exponentials. And the fact that the rate at which the temperature is climbing and the accelerating rate every year, how much the temperature warms incrementally is also growing. So you can't look at the next 30 years and say they're going to be the same as the last 30 year that we're going to grow at the same rate. We're hitting that point of the exponential curve where things really have the potential to get wild and really fast. Yeah. And, you know, I mentioned all these different factors in climate change solar output and the Earth's orbit, the distribution of the continents, all of that. And because we have this record, this history that we can look at on such a long time scale of the Earth, for somebody to say, well, we're just warming up because the Earth's orbit does this thing. We can point to the cycle, the evidence and say, no, we know where we're at in the Earth's orbit. We know what kind of temperatures we should be seeing. Same thing with solar output, the distribution of the continents, but as we look back at like ice cores and we can see what kind of gases were trapped in the ice, we can see these strong correlations between an increase in greenhouse gases and an increase in global temperature. You and I have talked about this in the past, Corey, that is climate change all man-made? No, there, there are lots of factors, but we can clearly see that human behavior is causing this anomaly this spike in temperature. And then when you look at all the current data, 
you look at the ice melt year after year, you look at just the temperature itself, you look at some of these feedback loops and these shifting weather patterns, and it becomes quite apparent that the evidence is there. I think it's interesting as well because the the evidence isn't just in what happens with the climate, but also what happens to species on the earth living through those climates, right? We talk about how we're in the sixth mass extinction. Well, we don't say that just because, you know, of the number of species that are being lost currently, but we can look back and see in past extinction events what was happening with the climate during those times. And not all mass extinction events in the past are because of naturally changing climate. You think of the meteor that destroyed the dinosaurs, right? And that was a very rapid occurrence. It wasn't a normal ebb and flow in the climate. But I guess my point is you're, you're able to look back and say, as the climate changes and as there are rapid changes to the climate, this is how species react. And oh, in these five previous cases, there just happened to be mass extinctions that occurred. And we think that we're currently in the midst of the sixth of those. One thing I think this all highlights is that the complexity of our planet makes it that much harder to get people to understand and to take action. You mentioned that we struggle to comprehend things on the kind of time scale that we're talking about. Like I know I do. I can't I can't really think in the scope of tens of thousands and millions of years. I just can't quite comprehend that. And you try to sit down with leaders of corporations or government policymakers and start talking about these two different isotopes and their weights and the way that influences precipitation and what you can see in sediment cores, you're, you're going to lose people. You know, I, I spent time researching this so I could understand it better. But even after all the research I've done, I've only scratched the surface. These paleoclimatologists have dedicated years and years to understanding it, researching it. And so it makes these kind of anti-climate change claims so much more believable. Similar to my dad telling me growing up, yeah, carbon dating, it's all a bunch of bunk because it's so inaccurate. An orange peel showed as being 4 million years ago. If I don't know a whole lot about any of this and somebody says, oh yeah, the Earth's orbit just changes and the sun's output changes and none of it's within our control, it's going to be really easy for me to believe that. And so I think it's really important that we've discussed this that we understand it well, at least enough that we can have confidence in what we're claiming. But it's sad to me that this just creates one more barrier to trying to get people to pay attention and making any kind of meaningful action actually take place. Yeah, I think you make a really good point there with how complex the topic is and how people can just so easily convolute or twist that to meet their narrative, right? Even with rational and sane people with such a complex topic, it would be easy to believe whatever you kind of hear about it. Because there's there's no way for me to verify paleoclimatology and whether or not the science is sound, right? Unless I want to go get an entire degree in it and really understand it. Otherwise, I just have to trust the scientists. And so for people who generally just don't trust scientists, it's really easy to just turn those claims aside. I mean, we live in a world where you know, people think that JFK Jr. is going to come back to life or something because of QAnon and whatever. You know, there's so many conspiracies out there that this is a really simple and easy one to believe that, oh, the climate changes. It's normal. What we're going through is normal. And this is just the Democrats trying to make more money and control your life. And once it's written off like that and you've got 
you know, a third or a half of the population that believes that, of course, no action is going to be taken. And that's incredibly sad to see. One other comparison that I think is interesting between now, modern life, and life 100,000 years ago, just going back to the idea of complexity, we are so much more complex. And as we all know, that makes us so much more vulnerable. I think a lot of people, besides just not understanding huge numbers and, and huge timelines, they also just understand in systems, being able to think in how multiple systems work together and, and what complexity does to a system. But you know, you think of the impact that COVID-19 has had or shifts in demographics and, and how big of an impact those can have on economies and therefore on people's ability to survive, to have enough food or, or shelter or water or whatever it may be, impacts to the climate in the past, 100,000 years ago, may have not had as huge of an impact on life that lived back then, even humans that lived back then. Humans that could be more mobile and rely on a smaller group of people to get what they need. They could go from place to place. Or if they didn't, if, if a certain tribe of people died off, the other existing tribes or groups of people didn't depend on them. But you look at our world today and the shift in climate that affects any part of the food supply chain affects everybody. You can't just have one portion of the planet that dies off and not have it affect everybody else. We are incredibly vulnerable to these types of things. And, you know, if you go to the R Collapse subreddit and just scroll through the articles there, I'm just astounded at how many different articles there are about all the different ways that our supply chains are in trouble right now. All the different ways that food prices are increasing and why water is becoming more scarce and housing is more difficult to acquire and, and all of these different things that are happening all simultaneously that make living harder. And any real impactful change in the climate is just going to exacerbate those things to no end. Yeah, I think you make really good points there. And for me... You know, I, I still feel like I'm very new to all of this. Each step, each of these things that I learn about results in me being that much more convinced in the inevitability, whether sooner or later, of collapse. That the way that we're heading as a society globally has to get back to more of an equilibrium. That complexity that you talked about will be reduced to a state of more simplicity. And unfortunately, because of our dependence on the system as it stands, that's going to result in a lot of challenges, a lot of suffering. I'm really grateful for the decades of work that these paleoclimatologists have done, the ways that they've been refining their models and incorporating more factors and being able to come up with some really sophisticated evidence for what the climate has looked like in the past so that we know where it should be now and what we can expect with all these rapid changes taking place going into the future. This was really high level. We touched on some basics, but if any of our listeners have more information or resources on paleoclimatology, I'd be interested to take a look at those. So I hope you'll send those our way. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.